Han rankade i podcaster Rönsöpöke. Skipsi hunga kan ranka ranken. Kan rankasak kan ranka o. Welcome to Con Langry, the podcast about constructed languages and the people who create them. I'm George Corley. Uh, with me in the great state of Wisconsin, we have William Annis. Hello. And up in New Jersey, we have uh, Mike Lentine. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> I forgot your name for a little bit. Yes, that's why I'm laughing. <laughs> Thank you. I've got for one week and you forget my name. Gosh. <laughs> At least he didn't call you Bianca. <laughs> Yeah, that's okay. Hi. That's okay. <laughs> our um, our our feedback is uh, is 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 directed mainly at you today, so that uh, may help. Me? Oh, all right. Remember, I for I f- forgot to use Bianca's made uh, married name many times. So yeah, yeah. Hmm. <laughs> anyway, um, before we start, I do want to uh, speak to a certain thing. Um, as we're recording this, um, the uh, the podcast has not been downloadable for a day or so. Oh, um, I think I fi- we figured out what's going on. Um, it's not the solution that I would like that uh, to have at the uh, current time, but right now I have it tempor- temporarily solved and. Um, Hopefully, in the future, I can find something a little bit more better. But the important thing is that, as of this recording, it's working again. So Yay. that's a good thing. <laughs> At least as far as uh, William and I have tested it. So um, anyway, moving on, we mm. have a topic to that today. Yay, topic. Uh and this topic is something that we may get a lot of things wrong because we don't nece- – none of us are really conlangers that do this sort of thing usually. But I wanted to talk about it because I am in the process of deriving a language from Ayurio. I'm deriving uh, Malviz, which is uh, sort of the – Dark Ayurio, if you want to say it, say it that way, um, through historical processes. And, um, so as such, we're talking about language history and how to derive a language diachronically. Um, so first of all, I want to say, ask, say to people, why would you want to do this? You know, I have not done this before, and um, William, you're not big on doing a whole lot of historical linguistics in your languages, are you? Um, I typically imagine a language in a window of about, I don't know, 50 to 300 years, depending on what I think is going on. So I do very mm-hmm. mild historical stuff just because that gives me um, uh, things like... Uh, vocabulary and grammar and other sorts of processes that look somewhat naturalistic. Mm. But mm-hmm. the really, the really deep 
create a language, derive another language from it through a thousand years. I, I've really never done that because I don't have the patience for it. Hmm. Yeah. It, uh, I found it does take a lot of patience, but the, what you, uh, have said does, it does make sense as why you would do this. It adds a whole lot of depth to things. Um, mm-hmm. and it's, a makes it a lot easier to create reg- irregularities. I found that, um, when you have an inflectional system in place in your proto language, and then you derive another language using sound changes. Mm-hmm. Everything goes bug nuts. <laughs> <laughs> is that yeah, a you can, term? You, it is mm-hmm. it's a very technical term. I mean, you can reconfigure the grammar of your entire language through things like that. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, I've had, you know, I've had um, things just get completely axed because they're not distinguished off and on off to, for me to really care about them. Mm-hmm. I've um in in my current project and um I'm still figuring out some other places where things are merging in one place and not merging in another place and what to do with that, whether mm-hmm. to do some analogical flattening or to delete something or what. Right. So anyway, um second question is how far back do you go? Now, William, you said you go only go like 50 to 300 years and you don't really do it systematically. Uh, no, these days I do. I do it systematically. I just don't I just don't do really deep stuff. Uh, mm. That mm. that that will give you a I think that much will give you a good sense. I think a lot of people say a thousand years mm-hmm. is a good thing to get a fairly deep thing. I think you could probably go as deep as you really care to go back to about 10,000 years. Beyond 10,000 years, it's not going to matter anyway, because there's so much in real languages. When we get back to 10,000 years, there's so much noise that we really can't reconstruct much of the Prudelang in the first place. I mean, I mean, you could do this. You would just have to be very imaginative. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, you're you're just going to have to make stuff up. There are going to be entire reworkings of systems. You'll just have to figure out from step to step. Yeah. Yeah. Whenever, and, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Um, I was just going to say, whenever I do it, I don't I don't really do too much in terms of, uh, you know, going back on the history. But when I do, I don't usually think of it in terms of the years. Because just like if you were to say, oh, how long has the English you've been speaking going on? It's not like there's a very clear, like, it's not like you can say, oh, well, it was born on this day. So for me... I just more think of it as instead of thinking of it, thinking of it in terms of years, I think of it's just in terms of revisions or in terms of phases that slowly ebb and flow in and out of one another. Yeah, that's you could you could do that. In fact, what I'm doing right now because my biggest problem has been figuring out what, um, how to do the time frame mm-hmm. and um, how to do how to how many sound changes to make per hundred years or whatever. Yeah. Um, I'm just doing this in a sandbox sort of thing. And I'm not Mm. caring about how long things have gone on because they're immortal spirits. They're going to, their language is going to change at a different rate. Anyway, it's, it's, it's really bizarre stuff going on. So I can sort of do that and then get practice before I start working on human languages that I want to develop historically. And then I have to kind of say, 
okay, I'll take a thousand years and I'll divide it into two 500 year chunks. So I have the intermediary stage and then I'll figure it out. But the, the thing that matters more, I think here is less than an actual time frame. Mm-hmm. Then that you get the order of the sound changes yes. sequenced properly. Yes. Yes. <laughs> right? So yes, it's not yes, like, yes. It, you know, like the, the transition from, say, pre-Greek to ancient Greek, mm-hmm. as, as Mike said, it's not like that just happened one day or through one generation. It's an accumulation of changes that happen in a particular order, a vowel change here, a funky consonant merger there, right? And those things have to be gotten in the right order. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it ma- otherwise yeah. your, your rules don't make sense. And um, what was I going to say? And whether it takes, you know, 50 years or 150 years for those changes to take place doesn't matter so long as you've got the order right. So in the the, the grand master plans that we see for things like Brethenig and Venedig in those, I mean, they give time frames, but the point is, is that each time window, which might be fairly small, has a collection of changes that are applied in order. And then a new set of changes right. that are applied in order. That's that matters more than the actual time frame. Yeah, I would, I would, I would say so. The main thing I would point to having specific time frames for were if you were developing several languages in the same world and you wanted to have loans between them. Right. But even even then, I mean, you can as long as you have them in the right order, you can sort of say, okay, in in uh 200 year or 500 year chunks what the sound changes are and then and then but yeah the order is the most important thing and also um just when you're playing with the sound changes and working with the sound changes one thing that i would say is important is just so that you get everything consistent i would use uh, a sound change applier. I'm using Zounds, which mm-hmm. has its limitations. I don't like the fact that the way that it handles um, stress-based rules, and I don't like it the way it handles distinctive features that much, but it does work for most purposes. And basically that way, when you have the machine doing it, you can do several different iterations without tiring yourself out and making mistakes. Right. Right. So we lost Mike. I'm back. All right. All right. Sorry about that. So as so, I was saying, <laughs> right. um, I wrote it down so I know where I left off. All right. George um, was just going on at length about um, the usefulness of having uh, a sound change applier mm-hmm. program. Okay. Oh, I didn't hear any of that. No. Um, I've Last thing I heard was um, I, I mentioned about how I don't usually use the, t- the years, and then I was in the middle of mentioning how if there was a war and something that a different group came in at a certain time mark and a benchmark, then having the years would be good. But I didn't hear anything about a program. <laughs> so yeah, well, that was something I, I I mentioned. If you're developing in a, within a con world several languages in parallel, you want to you want to put put dates on on stages of the language maybe not individual sound changes because 
let's be honest, you can't fix a state on a sound change because it's something that starts somewhere and propagates throughout the language. Yes, yeah, definitely. Right. Um, so, uh, I would I mean, think... just just from the standpoint of organizing your work, you could, you know, sequence them either just numbers. It doesn't matter if that's a year or, or whatever, but you, you'll want to do that. Yeah. I know in, like, some of the old Chinese, uh, they didn't really use years before, and they just used em- dynasties. So if you had that kind of, uh, I guess, history cataloging system in your con world, you know, if, yeah. after the first dynasty, you could even just label it that way. It's just a little flavor. Well, this... This this it gets very deep into con worlding the way that we're doing it, but yeah, um, the the what you're mentioning, but it is important if you have loan words coming in at different times to mm-hmm. kind of have an idea of what things sound like at different periods throughout history. Yeah, yeah, but that actually those loan words are interesting for real historical linguistics in that they can help you date sound changes. Yeah, that's very true. Right, if you borrow uh-huh. a word. And it's borrowed, and now once the word has been borrowed, it becomes subject to the sorts of sound change rules. Mm-hmm. So if you've got a word that has a particular vowel, say, in a position that you would normally expect to change, but it didn't, then you can say something about um, what happened. Yeah. Or rather, yes. when something happened. But we don't, I think we've said enough about time. And I think, okay. speaking of when, language, when words lang- enter your language, um, that can give you a nice bit of full richness, because... If you have, if you were to have all your words in language, and all those words have the exact same changes, and were born from the very same time, you might have holes. But if you have words coming into your language after certain changes, that'll fill up some of the holes, and it'll make, I think, for a lot more robust and richer feeling to your language. Mm-hmm. Well, Do you know what I mean? And, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, it that that makes sense. Um, William, you have a very, I think, a very important note here. That you say, do not ignore the neo-grammarian hypothesis. Now, right. ex- explain to that that for um, people who wouldn't know what that term means. Right. So the neo-grammarian hypothesis is one of those early foundational moments in linguistics, and in particular historical linguistics. The neo-grammarian hypothesis is that sound changes are completely regular. Mm-hmm. If you decide... Mm-hmm that a coda T turns into a ya sound, then that has to take place everywhere in every word, in every context in the language. If there is an exception, you must make a better sound change rule. Mm -hmm. Now, if you do something like George suggests and use a sound change applier, then it's going to be harder harder for you to ignore this rule. Now, um, maybe I wasn't listening or my sound cut out during that, but what was there a certain program that he mentioned or suggested? Uh, I use Zounds. There's also yeah. Zompus Sound Change Applier. There's I mean, there are several. Okay. Yeah, there's several out there. Um, I I use Zounds because that's the one that I, I just got used to, but um, there's limitations to it. I haven't found one. One thing that I haven't... Uh, found is one that handles stress-based rules well, mm. but um, that's that's just a, a another thing. Um, I'm sure that somebody uh can make something like that, but you know, it's something that it's it's one of those things. All the tools that are that uh you're going to work with, 
mm-hmm. obviously are going to be a little kludgy, a little weird, because this is something that only conlangers would ever use. So, yeah. <laughs> Right, so only conlangers yeah. are running this program. And that's an important thing to mention. I mean, really, we can't in this show go over the sorts of actual phonetic changes that happen over time. There are lots of resources for this. You can look at any Rom Lang's Grandmaster plan. Um, I've got links um, for the show that have links to documents um, that have a lot of really good information about sound changes and, and documenting them. Like I've got one that documents the change from Latin to Old Occitan. Oh, wow. Which is the language of the troubadours. Um, it has lots of detail explaining and showing you each of these sound changes and, and context. So you can get ideas for the sound changes anywhere. Mm-hmm. So I really don't think we should talk about that much on the show. But I will mention in passing that stress accent especially can have a very profound effect on those sound changes. Mm-hmm. So this is one of those things where the neogrammarian hypothesis comes into play. There were some sound changes that didn't make sense in, say, a language like Latin. We're like, why would this A turn into an E here? It turns out that Latin used to have a different accent. Mm. It used to be word initial. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that suddenly accounts for all of the changes. And, and the neogrammarian hypothesis is once again happy that all of your sound changes are regular. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. You just have to make sure that you write your rules properly. And, and the reason I mentioned the, the neogrammarian hypothesis is that if you're making your sound changes by hand, or you start tweaking and saying, oh, but I like this word shape here, but I don't mm-hmm. like this word shape here, then you you lose, I think, some of the benefit of doing this, going through this whole process in the first place. And second of all, it probably will start to make your work hard to control if you care about the consistency of the language. Now, if yeah. you if you were to reason it away by saying those words that you want to keep the other shape came in after that sound change happened, that'd be one workaround, right? Sure. And and from time to time, words are preserved in archaic shapes for mm-hmm. various reasons. There might be literary reasons. Weird archaic vocabulary persisted in Greek because of Homer and his mm-hmm. meter falls apart if you don't do things. So, I mean, there are things that can take particular kinds of words, important words that might be slowed down for this or that reason. Mm-hmm. Um, but by and large, throughout the vast majority of your day-to-day working language, the changes will be consistent and universal. Yes. For, yeah, yeah. I, think, mm-hmm. I think the important thing is to say that do that sparingly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. We, we will note that there's, there's some uh, – that, that there are changes where – times when you can sort of systematically – um, negate some of the effects from a sound change. William, you mentioned, you just say analogy here. That's one thing. If you have things that, that change your inflectional paradigms, you might, uh, it, you might in certain words end up with, uh, analogy sort of flattening some of the irregularities, but exactly. it's sort of, it's, it's, that's, Another thing where you, you take that on a case by case basis and any other time when you're just going to say, Oh, this word just say, stays the same. Make sure it's a very important word, a word <laughs> that would possibly stay to stay the same for some reason. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, William, so, help so, me here. Um, the, 
The uh, the weird pharyngealized L in Allah. Is right. that like some weird preservation thing? I don't know if that's a preservation or if it is a recitation artifact. It's an interesting case where they use the dark L only in that word. I think there may be one or two others, but yeah, it's pretty much confined to that. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I've, I've never investigated that. So getting back to um, analogy, analogy typically happens when some grammatical paradigm is crushed by sound changes. George has just mentioned that a bunch of, I don't know if it's your cases or your verb system is being flattened by typically the loss of final vowels, the loss of final syllables, all sorts of things can happen. Mm-hmm. So that you might, for example, borrow a case marking from a different paradigm. You mm-hmm. might borrow a declension, a, 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 a verb um, conjugation ending from a different tense or aspect system. Just because otherwise you'd have nothing left in place or you'd lose a distinction you don't you you care about. Yeah. The biggest thing I'm having is uh with with verbs because there's like one set of circumstances that will cause the necessitative to merge with uh optative and potential and mm. it doesn't happen anywhere else. I'm thinking maybe I will actually just change that by with analogy. So sure. That, sure. That's the very, very specific example from my language. But yeah, that that kind of thing, you can sort of fudge things that way if there's if there's something going on, because that happens in, in natural languages. It's uh William, you've mentioned before one of the strangest things about English is that um for some reason people have started turning weak verbs into strong verbs. Right. Right. We get so used we get used to this pattern and then we start uh, spreading it out, which is pretty funny, I think. Hmm. <laughs> Let's take something that's regular and make it irregular because it rhymes with something else. And that's actually that's a perfect example of this sort of analogical change happening. Something about mm-hmm. a particular word strikes it as being quite a lot like another so it gets drafted into a new verbal category. Is that what you mean yeah, by right. the, is that what you mean by the the making strong of weak ver- of weak verbs? Yes. Okay. No, no, no. That's when you take a strong verb and uh, you take a weak verb and make it a strong. So this is yeah, probably, that's what I meant. should explain this. So in English, weak verbs are regular, right? They don't have the muscles to fight and do their own thing. They're they're just squashed <laughs> down and they make and strong verbs are irregular, like sit and sat and you know. And that's not tied to the semantics of it, right? No, so, uh, weak and strong. Okay, I don't think no, it, no, 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 no. It's it's a purely morphological category. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes people, you know, I'm trying to remember. I can't remember the verbs. So the um, is it? Do they have to do with well, what they? I know. I know what sneak is yes. one of the ones that has. It used to be sneak and sneaked, and now it's sneak and snuck. Right, because somebody, some some people have thought that. It sounds a lot like other um other strong verbs, which basically the thing that defines strong verbs mainly is there's often a uh a stem change. And also I think they have another they have different they have different um past tense and uh different past tense and past participle forms. Is that right. correct? Right. Yeah. Um so that's 
just uh, sort of one example. And the important thing, and this we mentioned with all kind with on our irregularity episode, the analogy is more most common in less common words. So if your if your sound changes screw up the um, paradigm for to be, it's probably just going to end up being screwed up because people use that word all the time. Mm-hmm. Right. But uh, if your um, if your sound changes mess up the paradigm for uh, to fornicate, then it might get flattened. It probably will get flattened. It depends on how much of a party people your culture is. Um, um, I had one quick question. Um, well, not really a question, but um, when we are talking about losing of the final sounds, um, French, I know a lot of the other uh, Romance languages are pro-drop. So French doesn't real in the endings, the French endings don't really tell you a lot about who, who is doing the action. So is that an example of where you'd have, uh, you know, it becoming, it going from pro-drop to non-pro-drop? Or um, is that related to that? I think actually that that's a good example. I think that's the case that rather than rework the the verb system mm-hmm. um, so that it could continue to be pro drop in French, they just started using their pronouns all the time. Yeah, that's like, exa- that, yeah. that's another way. I mean, English used to have cases. <laughs> yeah, and so in fact did Latin, but in both the case of English and most of the Romance languages. Um, when the case system evaporated, we just filled in with prepositions, yeah, mm-hmm. um, and syntax. So this is another thing that can, you know can cause changes. I mean, one thing I want to mention in passing is I think I get the impression that Tolkien mostly his historical stuff was focused on vocabulary. I don't know that he ever worked out the grammar of his whatever it is, proto Eldarin or, or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Um, you probably should not follow that. If you want to go real full-on historical development, then you need to have at least some of the morphology um, in place. Yeah, particularly if you um, have an inflectional proto-lang, mm-hmm. because certain sound changes murder inflections. <laughs> like, um, you know... Particularly dropping vowels from the middle of a word, I have found murders your your inflectional system. Yeah, so yeah. that leads to very interesting results. Um, mm. uh, th- th- just um, <sighs> George is overwhelmed so, by historical sound changes. <laughs> yes. um, another thing that you should mention is this analogy thing. It occur. You should only really use it where. One one word or uh, a certain uh, set of circumstances is doing something that is not occurring anywhere else. Like, so back to my own sort of personal examples, I found that in certain noun declensions, I was finding that basically anything I did was causing the collective and plural forms to merge. So I just asked the collective yeah. in those in those paradigms because you know at that point it just disappears. Yeah. But you know my other example where uh, I was having things merge certain uh, uh, mood paradigms merge that weren't merging in other places that that's where you get into the fudge category of 
you know, maybe people would start borrowing inflections from other words in order to compensate for that. Exactly. Hmm. Exactly. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. The changes by analogy, I, I get in real historical linguistics, it can be a bit of a dodge. So you probably don't want to resort to that too often, you know, mm-hmm. just accept the consequences of the merger that's happening and try to think about what's going on. Don't immediately try to do an analogy, make an analogical change that simply reconstructs what you had before. Now, when you say yeah. analog, when you say analogy, um, word that's not like a is to b as c is to d that's an analogy no, no, as an no, no, no. analog analytic languages kind of thing no 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 by no. analogy i mean say that for some reason mm-hmm. um you went through a sound change where all of the vowels in your past tense verb before the ending was you know ah mm-hmm. except for one over time there might be pressure to make all of the entire system look the same mm-hmm so that's an example of, of a change that can happen. That sort of thing can also happen when a, a sound change causes mergers. You might take analogous forms from different parts of your verb system and grab them over to your past to reconstitute a, a category that you've lost. Huh. Okay. Uh-huh. And again, it's particularly when this sound change causes something to get lost in some verbs but not in all of them yeah or some some nouns and not in all of them that's the that's the key i think yeah if you've got a verb system that has a past imperfect a past perfect a present a future and a future perfect and only in the future do you lose a distinction in the ending between the first and second person singular then you're very likely to reconstitute that distinction from one of the other systems now when are you for sound changes uh uh-huh but but when we talk about analogy that's the sort of change we're talking about now when with sound changes do they sometimes just pertain to like in this conjugation i thought they didn't really care like that okay no no no. they they apply always and everywhere yeah they're not really smart in that sense they don't choose hmm only when we're talking about the past does this happen it happens across the board right exactly Hmm. um now, let's move on to something that I haven't actually gotten to working on quite yet. The mm-hmm. semantic drift. Yeah. Issue. So there are two ways you can use this. Mm-hmm. There's First, you have the issue of why are you making historical language in the first place? It's possible you may have created language A mm-hmm. for some con world, and now you want to create language B, which is a historical child. But you still have those languages interacting somehow. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Or you want to have several languages that are related, and so you created the proto-lang, and then you're going to derive two or three languages that might be interacting somehow. So semantic drift is just what, what it means. The meanings of words sort of, sort of move out into other realms of meaning. And sometimes it's hard to think about, well, how could this happen? Um, but... Polysemy or polysemy, both pronunciations mm-hmm. are acceptable, um, mm-hmm. exists na- in all natural languages, so it gives you something to think about. For example, in English, the verb see can additionally, in addition to meaning just, you know, the visual perceive something by sight, can mean understand. Mm-hmm. So what you can do then is have in child language A, 
see lose its original meaning and also and only ever mean understand. And then you have another word for for to see. Right. Then you'll have some other constructions created for see. Mm-hmm. Um, but then in a related language, it might still have both of those meanings, or it might have, for whatever reason, lost the understand meaning entirely. Mm. Uh-huh. In terms, so that's the, the one thing. If you've got multiple languages, um, semantic drift, especially semantic drift related to polysemy, gives you a way to have dialect differences that are natural and make sense. The next thing you can do with this sort of polysemy historically is, so let's say we've got this word for C, and we have a word derived from it that means sight. Okay. Mm -hmm. Then your language undergoes the shift where the verb C now only means understand, but you still have the meaning sight associated with one of its derivations. Okay. So now you've got a natural sort of weirdness in your vocabulary where a word that is clearly related to the word understand, you know, that is clear, you have a word that means sight that is clearly related to the verb understand mm-hmm. in the current state of your language. Mm-hmm. So again, this is a way to produce naturalistic weirdnesses in your vocabulary mm. by playing with semantic drift. Mm-hmm. I've completely baffled both of you. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I'm, no, I think no, I'm no, following. No, it's a, it's a very important um thing to mention because you know I'm I I've been one to just like create a bunch of roots and then cherry pick them for meanings right but now that I have the opportunity to derive a historical language I could actually use that mm-hmm. that sure. idea and there are a lot of other things that can drive semantic drift um one of my favorite things, although it's probably less frequent, is ironic changes. I think there was a good example. Someone in our comments mentioned, what was it, Sanskrit? Or um, there was a point where a, 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 uh, a word referring to good spirits and then a word referring to get bad spirits switch places. Oh, right. So that represents mm. a cultural dispute there. So the the language Sanskrit is very, very uh-huh. closely related to old Iranian, namely Avestan. Mm-hmm. And in the Avestan language, Deva means demon, but in Sanskrit, it means God. And then you have the Asuras in Sanskrit, Ahuras in um, Avestan again underwent a similar shift, although it looks like originally devas and asuras were just different kinds of divinities. But sort of culturally over time, the difference between the Vedic culture and the Avestan culture went in such a way that the words took on effectively opposite meanings. I'm not sure if uh, yeah. this would be, I'm not sure if this is semantic drift related, but what I do sometimes is I think of borrowing between languages, but not perfect borrowing. Like maybe there were um, people who spoke language A coming over to let people who spoke language B's territory and people of language, like, okay, say you had some people who came over and called and they saw a bird and they called it cardinal. Well, if someone were to pick up that word cardinal, they might erroneously assign it to all birds. So all your birds are going to be called cardinal. Just sure. kind of, um, just a little bit of shift in that sense. And I try to think of how that could create a little bit of drifting and the languages have words that are, you can see where it came from, but they're not necessarily cookie cutter one from the other. Yeah, yeah, that, that happens all the time. Um, I remember everybody who I've talked to who studies Japanese has, has 
has given me the example of kimono in Japanese is a compound meaning something to wear. <laughs> oh, right. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. The, that's just, but it got assigned to a culturally specific thing, which, which loan words can tend to do. But yeah, loan words undergo semantic shifts. Another example in the opposite direction was, um, a little bit more convoluted, but, uh, karaoke, mm-hmm. karaoke. Yep. Comes from where, uh, Japanese combined the Japanese word kara, empty, with the English word orchestra, which came, became orchestra and then orke, oke. So empty orchestra became, you know, sort of hmm. singing, uh, acapella, um, in a funny way in front of your friends. And then that came back to us. Yeah. So, you know, that's a nice kind of way to add some flavor in there. Yeah. I, um, so yeah, I think the point is that semantic drift can happen both historically and in the process of borrowing. Yeah. Right. The, the meaning can expand out. It can contract. It can shift to a slightly different sense, which might be obvious, obviously related, or it might be a more metaphorical extension. Um, is okay. there anything else we want to say about semantic drift and polysemy? No, I think we got um, a good bit. Maybe. George, you're not sure? I mean, I don't know. one of the problems I, with... I, I just want to highlight that I just want to say, basically, it's an important thing. And I think there is some... I should have researched this beforehand. I think there's some formula as to how what percentage of your words are going to get replaced over time oh that's important yeah yeah um so that's something uh it varies from language to language though because i i understand that like um this has has happened very slowly for icelandic but uh-huh. faster for many other languages yeah uh but anyway because of isolation and such. Right. Um, right. Uh, so, I'll just, are we ready to move on? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, go ahead. So, the, the one more point is uh, don't forget to pay attention to derivational morphology. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. New meanings and functions might develop over time. Mm. Um, for a good example, the English ending E-R. Mm-hmm actually is a, a a good example of polysemy in the sort of derivational realm. Most of the time, it derives agent nouns, runner, yes. speaker. But it can also be used to indicate instrument, like poker. Poker is not a person who pokes. A poker is a thing you use to, you know, poke at your fireplace with. Mm-hmm. Not, like, not the game, not the card game poker. Right, not mm-hmm. the card game poker, the the thing you use to reach into a fireplace without burning your hands. So those meanings might shift and develop over time as well. Now, a um, little bit of a silly thing, but like words that don't, that do end in ER, but don't have anything to do with that are just, they just go, was that um, like finger? It's not something that things, it just is uh, kind of, I guess, happens to have the same ending. That's not related. You know, I don't know about finger. It's just, I don't know. Things, that's just something that happens in natural languages. Things, um, things end up sounding the same that aren't really the same. So, yeah, they wander all over. 
Yeah. That can be another uh, result of sound changes. You may actually, um, a, a good thing when you're looking at um, any dictionary, mm-hmm. particularly in English language dictionaries will do this. Um, they will have different separate entries for historically different words. And then the basically the 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 meanings of one word that has changed historically uh are generally in one entry um and sometimes they give etymologies relating to them to yeah. much older words which almost never mean the same thing they mean now mhm that's true which is I another mean, good another good place to sort of think about natural changes that we know have happened and you can have very surprising things like things like um I believe one thing that gets quoted often is the English word silly at one point meant pious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and the, it took a long tortured route to, to take on its current meaning. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, um, that's maybe not the most common thing. I know some happen, words, but some words like, uh, like lunacy or lunatic that has to do with the moon and, um, how they thought it made people a little crazy so that's a little bit how the the derivation and words from past superstitions or past um social you know ideas like silly being uh tied to bias or lunacy being tied to the moon can yeah add a different important thing that's that's sort of a con worlding thing that you might want to take into account what was the culture like a thousand years ago and what's the culture like now Mm -hmm. right because right. that can that can affect what uh where words go in terms of their meanings. Yeah. Uh we don't the, the, have another oh, go ahead. Another another thing that gets uh brought up a lot is uh isn't it that many wor- romance language words for work are believed to be derived from some Roman torture device that we're not exactly sure what it is? <laughs> really? <laughs> That that wouldn't surprise yeah. me. That wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> now I wonder. I mean, um, that's that's a common sort of development of semantic shift is for words that talk about pain to be generalized to any sort of unpleasant experience, whether it doesn't have to be a physical pain. Uh huh. Hmm. Now uh, here's a. I'm not sure if this is a weird coincidence or not, but I know in Spanish, um, the word for esposa is wife. So las esposas can be wives, but also it means handcuffs. I wonder if that was just coincidence or if that was like anywhere somehow maybe being tied to someone in a, you know, united kind of sense or. I have no idea. It sounds like some crabby old man made Ah, a joke one day that stuck. I actually just found it. It says uh, someone said both terms share the same etymological root. They come from the Latin term spondere, which is to promise. So um, apparently, yeah. So, it's less... yeah, it... uh-huh. yeah, but uh, I mean, the point of all of these examples is just that uh, semantic drift can take weird and surprising roots. And you really should, if you if you want to be artistic about it, you can be artistic about it. In any case, when you're doing a his- any his- historical linguistics, you should take into account the semantic drift and you should play around with it. Have some mm-hmm. fun with it because they can take interesting roots. Yes, now, very interesting roots. One more quick question, maybe a speculational thing. Um, if we fast forward like a thousand years and look at Spanish, um, 
in some dialects of Spanish, the Z and the C before an E is pronounced like an S. So if there were a sound change that happened to all of the, the S sounds, would it only would it only happen in those dialects to ha- to apply to the Z and C? Because in Spain, they don't have the Z and C being pronounced as an S. Do you know what no, I mean? So, well, yeah, because it's not it's, <laughs> sound changes are not related to orthography, right? Right. No, no definitely sorry. not. No, no, definitely no. not. Um, uh, that's actually we should we should actually mention first thing that you do when you are doing sound changes make a phonetic transcription of the word not a phonemic because those sound change processes work on a phonetic level mm-hmm. right that is very important yes um, and in the case of what you're presenting mike in in my view mm-hmm. if you have you know, in some future Spanish where the phonetic represent the phonetic sound s mm-hmm. began a shift, that begin that in my mind begins the process of Castilian Spanish turning into a separate language from every other kind of Spanish. Yeah, and that's kind of interesting because you would see that you know it happens across the board and it doesn't happen relating to necessarily what they're written as or necessarily, um, you know, it doesn't happen in terms of. What? Oh, look! It's an S in the page, so it happens this way. But if, no, they no, no. It, if they pronounce it the same, then it's going to be on the same chopping block as everything else. Absolutely. Yeah. Um. Very quick side note: since you brought up writing, Mike, I think if you are doing a historical language and you are doing a writing system, depending on when you want people to have developed writing, you may want to develop your writing system for a stage of the language that is you know, several hundred years back and then add bizarre weirdnesses as it tries to adapt a little bit to where they're smoking language, but it's definitely going to be conservative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's one of those things that yeah. drives me bonkers about invented writing systems, especially for conlangs is they often perfectly represent the language. How convenient. And then, mm-hmm. Yeah. How convenient. That's wildly unlikely. Unless they have maybe some I mean, sort of like a Academia Real where they continually update the writing system. Or they just started writing recently. Those are the only two circumstances where I can yeah. think of where they would continue to modify their writing system mm-hmm. um, as well, the even, language changed. Even though uh, Spanish regularly reforms their their writing system, it's still got some historical oddnesses. There's no reason why they have to have the silent U's and the... Uh, uh, and the uh, the and they have to have both C and Z. Uh, there's there's things there's still historical weirdness in in Spanish as transparent as it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know you look at English. Oh man, <laughs> it's crazy. It's it's yeah. crazy effed up language. And 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 it's modern as, Greek. Modern so, Greek is just as bad as English. It's a completely and, um. um Etymological spelling that has very little relationship, especially in the vowel style, the language is spelled. So is ancient Greek better or less crazy? Yeah. yeah, ancient Greek, because they, you know, they'd only discovered writing very recently and decided, hey, we're going to invent vowels oh. um, compared to the Phoenicians. And no, it, early it was pretty darn, I mean, not perfect, but in early it was quite good. Mm. Yeah. And like, look at... If you want to, even if you have logographic systems, Chinese has phonetic elements in the characters that Mm -hmm. have not made sense for thousands of years. (laughs) Right, right. 
I could just imagine that. Oh, Johnny, you will never understand this. We still don't understand it. Right. <laughs> no, I'm talking to student. Don't try. <laughs> uh, but, um, yeah, definitely sort of pick out when your, your writing system was developed mm-hmm. and then develop it for that stage of language. And then as you move forward, that's something I haven't gotten to, but, and then as you move forward, think of, you know, to what extent does it adapt itself and use the tools it already has to represent what, what is current? Because yeah. it's always going to have this historical weirdness that comes from adapting it rather than reinventing it. Now, right. here's a, again, a, a point or question. Um, in, like in Japanese, I know sometimes the U's are not pronounced if they're between two, vo- uh, devoiced vowel or two voiceless consonants, I think. But you still write. Voiced. Yeah, but you, um, or, for languages where you do have, for some reason, you lost an element, um, do you, so are you saying you'd recommend keeping the written the the element there written to show that it disappeared? Because I know French writes like a the is it a circumfix over it sometimes to show there's a disappeared letter. Do you know what I'm talking about? Right. No. A, dis- mm-hmm. a, a disappeared s. Yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes. Keep things in the writing system that have subsequently disappeared. I mean, in, yeah. in the case of Japanese, the vowel's still there, it's just been devoiced. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, which is such a French, weird thing. French is a more straightforward example, because French just lost a bunch of sounds, but they're still written. Yeah. And English is the same way. We 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 no longer have, we no longer pronounce the word uh, knicht. We pronounce it night. Mm-hmm. But we still keep the K and the GH in there. Yes. Right. I mean, French is sort of funny because some of the sounds are lost most of the time, but then reappear in certain other environments. So the weird Mm -hmm. spelling system kind of makes sense. And (laughs) in spelling French, the lost final vowels, not spelling French, in singing French, Mm -hmm. um, in some styles, at least the final lost vowel reappears to to make your song scan again. And and there's there's other weird things. There's things in English spelling that have occurred not because of historical weirdnesses, but because of people having wrong etymologies and changing spellings. But we'll not get into that because this is not about writing systems, really. Mm-hmm. Um, do we have really much more to say about historical linguistics in general? I think, William, you have a few links here, not just to the Latin to Old Occitan stuff, but some non-Indo-European uh, sound change. So. Yeah, there are a few language families that have been well investigated um, in historical terms. Uto-Aztecan is a very, very large family that has a lot of good documentation. Um, and I've got two links there that have mm-hmm. good information about that. Um, I get the idea that the whole Afro-Asiatic family, which includes the Semitic branch, are pretty well documented, as is Bantu. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that, for example, um, and this is pretty cool, I'll see if I can find the, the link before this show goes live, is somebody has a database of related roots for the Afro-Asiatic family. Um, uh-huh. And once again, you can use that to get ideas both for sound changes and for semantic drift. Mm-hmm. I get the feeling that um, Austronesian has had a lot of work yet, but I don't know if they have how, how robust their work is yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and look at things that you might want to do. Like, if you want to do a, a tonal language, 
Think about possibly starting out with a proto-language that's not tonal and research a little bit about tonogenesis. Mm-hmm. Uh, think about it. You don't have to do it. Um, tone changes in themselves can be very interesting, too. Um, yeah. Think about if you want to add clicks, research clickogenesis. Is that what it's called? Because I think there are... <laughs> there are there are some theories as to how clicks can come about. Those kinds of things. Sometimes it can be more interesting to um, figure out how some interesting feature developed than to actually put it in from day one and keep it. Um, other than that, I don't know. It's it's a lot of it is your own personal um, ideas. I I think the main point, the main sort of final point I want to say is when you are doing this, the very first thing that should be in your mind is put together your sound changes, run things through sound changes. If your proto-lang has inflections, run the entire inflectional paradigm through the sound changes and just see what happens. Yeah. And you may end up losing stuff. That's fine. You may end up with bizarre irregular forms that's fine just sort of evaluate things on case by case basis and uh see what other things you're going to uh do to it but just figure out your sound changes and run them maybe alter them a little bit run them again and see if you come out with something that you like yeah and it's not like you should start off probably doing a romlang start simple imagine a short series of sound changes just so you can get an idea of what that does especially with these sound change programs it makes it a little easier to approach this you don't need to have you know a 2000 year grandmaster plan like they do for something like venedict don't start there or you'll go insane try small first (laughs) yeah as as you you will probably find yourself, uh, this is what I found myself doing, was I started out with a few basic sound changes. I actually started out with, I wanted this word to turn into this word. And I made the sound changes that would turn this word into this word. And then later on, I started adding stuff and sort of, you'll find sort of it creeping up into that territory where you are making the the grandmaster plan, but start out small. Mm. Anyway, um, is that about it? We that we have to say about historical linguistics? I think so. I think so. I found it's it just says click genesis for when you were asking about that. It says click genesis and click loss. There's no Wikipedia. It's in the Wikipedia on click consonants. Yeah, that's, they say that's that. A, they said that anything, anything can, any feature that you want to, any phonological feature that you want to talk about, any morphological feature. Uh, I think we didn't talk much about syntactic change. I think mm. syntactic changes probably will follow with whether or not your morphology significantly changes, like to the point where English lost almost all case marking. So we had syntactic changes going on mm-hmm. to compensate, but Right. Uh, I mean, and we mentioned this first... in the case of, of, of French as well. Yeah. But um, that's sort of a little bit going further on. And I haven't gotten to working out how my syntax has changed. So that 
that that can be interesting. That that will be an interesting thing when I get to it. Hmm. But for the starter, you want to deal with sound changes, words changing meaning, morphology changing, and then it will gradually sort of snowball from there into you building the whole language out of out of the historical changes. So, if that's all we have to say, um, we are going. We have a featured conlang today, mm. and it is called the Manalukud. The Manalukud. I yes. don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. I didn't look at the. So this was created by um, Aaron something. His his uh, he's on the ZBB as Radius Solus. It's an Akana language, right? Yes, it is an Akana language, but I wasn't able to find the Akana wiki page for it. I don't know if he's actually got that up yet. Mm. But he does have a grammatical sketch up on uh, on this uh, Washington.edu uh, sub-site that I will just have the link in the show notes. I'm not going to try to tell you the, uh, the ridiculous academic URL, but uh, it's Oh no. You guys, things mm-hmm. that stick out to you guys about this language. Go. <laughs> <laughs> I thought the verb system was cute because it's so restrained. Hmm. Uh huh. Right, it has non past, past, and irrealis. And that's yeah. it. Hmm. Yeah. A lot of codlangers do much more complex verbs. Yeah, I think I think there's a tendency because there's so much a verb can do when people get excited. I mean, there's still a bunch of stuff that goes on. So you've got the simple tense, the, the simple tense aspect mood system, but then you have other kinds of you have suffixes that are very interesting mm-hmm. that mark spatial dexes about where the thing happens. Oh, I have a quick question mm-hmm. before before we wander too far away from the verb thing. Um, it says there's first, uh, second, third, and what's fourth person? Is that like indirect speech? No, fourth person typically means is is an obviation mechanism. So that third person, like if you're telling a story about person A and person B, mm-hmm. typically one person matters more is mm-hmm. the focus of the conversation. So that person is third person, and then the incidentals become fourth person. Oh, okay. I don't think I've ha- I've seen that before. Hmm. Um, sorry to interrupt, but yeah, right. Uh. So in addition to the the location marking that happens on the verb, which is a little bit surprising to me, um, we have the usual sorts of um, uh, prepos- kind of prepositional ideas that can be used as prefixes up, down, back, across, over, that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. So your verb can get a little bit complex, but it's still restrained compared to typically what I end up doing, for example. <laughs> I find it uh, sort of interesting that under voice he lists reflexive and passive, which are suffixes, and then two applicatives, which are prefixes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that sort of is a, a little bit of a irregularity. Right. The um, second applicative... Oh, the, go ahead. Well, um, there's uh, The passive can also serve as a middle voice, apparently. Yeah. Mm. Um, um, the distinction in the applicatives is somewhat sensitive to the... Uh, argument structure of the verb so that intransitive verbs of motion are more likely to use the second applicative rather than the first. So that's a nice little thing to have happen there. I think uh, I'm looking at this, um, the D verbals, and that's kind of interesting. There's, you know, there's a, um, 
suffixes for making the agentive, patientive, uh, noun of an instrument, manner, means, and then the action noun or result. But then it, I thought it was interesting, the adjectival deverbals, where if you add one suffix, it makes it able to be ek, whatevered, and then um, able to whatever, and then uh, agentive participle act. Uh, adjective and then a patientive. So if your verb is to hit, um, you can make add that suffix and make it hittable. You know, able to be hit. And then the other one is to, able to hit. So I just find that kind of interesting and nice in terms of making more words derivationally instead of just coining new terms. Yeah, actually, this this language sketch is not huge compared to some Akana languages, even. So mm-hmm. these are kind of. These are reasonably common derivations, especially for people who've been exposed to Indo-European languages. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is he's got things that he lists as adverbial deverbals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just looking at that. So I would call these co-verbs is the terminology I'm um, accustomed to, at least for two of them. He has a non-past temporal adverb, which means when hitting at the time of hitting, and a past temporal adverb, which means before hitting, so it's kind of an anterior thing. Yeah, it's almost it, it's almost like a adverb verbal something like that. I mean, almost like a verbal ad, ad, adverb, but it. Uh, well, I mean, right, but mm-hmm. he doesn't ever mention whether or not they can take arguments. Mm. Like, can you have a direct object for these? And if you can, then I would probably not call them deverbals. I would call them. I would make them part of the the rest of the verb system because mm. they have okay. interesting interesting uses for syntax. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at um, the lexicon here. There's not that much going on, but there's stuff like a drop of water and a tear are the same word. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Mm-hmm, Mold yeah. and mildew is the same word. Moldy and rotten are the same word, which uh, I kind okay. of want to know what what their culture is like that they decided to they they decided to do that. I'm seeing this minus control and plus control thing. On right. So he discusses verbs. that earlier. He the language makes pretty pervasively makes a distinction between control or non control actions. So uh-huh. English does this lexically typically. Um see versus watch, hear versus listen to. Mm-hmm. You know receive versus get or take. Um, But he has a whole bunch of other lexical items that make this distinction to you, such as blurt out versus say, pass out versus go to sleep, that sort of stuff. Um, I like that. I like it when, go ahead. I like it when you have a grammatical thing that does things that we do lexically. Mm -hmm. Well, sort of the, I mean, this is mostly oh. lexical. I don't think there there are... I mean, there is a prefix to do this, um, but it looks like some of the verbs don't. The reason it matters so much is because um, there are uh, voice change possibilities and rules. Mm. So, for example, the archaic middle voice cannot be used with a plus control verb. Oh, okay. Okay, I see. Um, so, th- there, are, there are other implications there. And, and I like that in terms of naturalism, having um, restraints and restrictions and actually thinking about those means you're thinking about the semantics of your verbs a little bit more, which I approve of. Ooh, this is interesting. Um, 
I found this thing on classification, and I've actually looked at doing something like this before. Um, I think if I'm understanding it correctly, but um, basically, it's that um, it's under just classifier use, and there are looks like maybe a couple dozen of them. And uh, the example it gives is if Doku is a is a e Doku is a human arm, where e is the um, classifier for male or general people and their parts or traits. Versus just Doku by itself can be an arm, a leg, or branch. Then Myanzoku, where Myan is the uh, classifier for animates or other than people, would be an animal leg. Or Zodzoku is a tree branch, tree branch where Zod is for branched things. Or uh, Kwanzoku is a table leg, or Kwan is for long and flat solid things or vertical things. And um, that's an interesting sort of classifier system, because in China, it mentions that you have to use the classifiers after numerals, which kind of harkens to Chinese which I know we all like to mention, or at least George and I do. So, yeah, it's not it's, particularly like Chinese because of this ability to focus the meaning into specific ways mm-hmm. makes me think yeah. much more of Bantu languages. Hmm. I don't have any direct exposure to the Bantu, so Chinese is the first thing that I thought of when I saw this, but is, it, is this very much like their system in Bantu? Um, it looks like it's more pervasive here than it is in Bantu, but yes. Okay. There's there's quite a little bit of influence from African languages in the Akana world, I think. Mm-hmm. Um just that that a lot of the people it seems like a lot of the people who were doing stuff for that are interested in either African or American languages. Mm-hmm. That's good because so I mean for a, such a long long time it's been Indo-European and Turkish. Hmm. Yeah, have been the motivators for for conlangers. So to have a big focus on Africa, say, is a nice change. And now that you mention it, that is, I, I think I, I can see that there are a lot of Akana languages that certainly many of them have a strong aroma that, of of people who are familiar with languages of native North America. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, this interesting tidbits of things that are common to Africa is nice as well. Mm-hmm. Um. The only truly weird part of this language to me are the speech act markers. Yeah. Only because... I was looking at those. Only because we have one haya, which means the sentence is performative. That is, the sentence constitutes the very act it describes fulfilling itself. Okay. So we do this with language all the time. I'm just Mm -hmm. still not sure that it's natural to have special syntax announcing it. Hmm. Right, I expect most languages can let you say things like, you know, you are now man and wife. Mm-hmm. Actually, you know, that being sufficient, you don't need to say, oh, I'm doing something magical. I mean, in some sense, English does this. I now pronounce you man and wife. I mean, that I pronounce, that's a weird use of that word compared to the rest of English. So in some sense, it's or, announcing the performativity of what you're doing. grammar actually mentions, hereby, I hereby declare that. Sure, I don't know. sure, sure. I mean, that makes sense. I guess we do in English. I'm just not used to having a special I guess piece of grammar to do that. I think, I guess it seems a little unusual to have a particle that is applied in all cases where that happens. Right. right. Maybe that's just our English bias here, but. Um, yeah. If somebody knows a natural language that has overt performative marking always, please let me know. That would be cool. Mm hmm. Yeah. Um, but. I don't know. This the it's interesting. It sort of makes me think of disc part, discourse particles in a way. 
Mm-hmm. It's an inter- the, the the clause initial particles do can con- con- cover an interesting range of meanings. Some of them are purely speech acts. Some of them are sequencing, which I actually like. Okay, mm-hmm. sort of a, a natural broadening of functions that I approve of. Mm. One of them looks like an evidential. So yeah, there's a range of meanings here. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a few cock and has a couple different meanings. That's that's an interesting thing. Uh, there's things like the hui actually mm-hmm. requires the ver- main verb to be irrealist. Mm-hmm. Hui, s, and vlod. Vlod all require irrealist verbs. That's an interesting thing that just sort of the fact that they're using this particle requires a certain verb form. Mm. Yeah. Uh, See, then to get really interesting, you should have the particle mean one thing with irrealis and one thing with non-irrealis. Mm. Then yeah. we're getting into yeah, sort that, of nat- natural madness. That, that that could be that could be kind of awesome. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah. There's a bunch of classifiers, aren't there? There yeah. are a bunch of them. That size is surprising to me. Uh-huh. Uh, that makes it seem more Chinese to me to to have that many classifiers. I mean, Chinese probably has more than that, but uh, I don't know. I see like 20 of them here. Right. Yeah. So in terms of the Bantu languages, the one language that has the very most classifiers is some this or that member of the Fula family, which has around between 24 and 27, depending on how you count and what city you're in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This language is at that same maximum. It has like 24 or 25 of these things. Yeah, okay. So it could still be Bantu. I mean, the behavior of it seems to be much more like that than the Chinese, even. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think in Chinese, for example, you could change the classifier or measure word to give a different shade of meaning. Like, if you say, like, um, like if you were to talk about uh, I don't know, like e, like for the word for flat object. Or okay, for example, um, tiao, like is it for the firm the word for long, narrow, flexible objects like rivers, fish, plant, uh, pairs of pants. But if you, for example, wanted to talk about, say, uh, I don't know, talk about maybe a piece of paper, but you wanted to accentuate that aspect of it, I don't think you could just switch that no. classifier. No, 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 like, no, no. In, no. In Chinese, in, in get Chinese it's definitely that's definitely the thing where this language departs from the, the Chinese classifiers and is more like the Bantu because in Chinese the classifiers are just arbitrarily assigned to words. I mean, there's some logic to it, like you know, Xiao tends to be long, thin stuff. Zhang tends to be flat things, but it's like grammatical gender in that they're sort of pseudo-arbitrarily assigned. And there's a few cases where you can use one or another. But in this case, I don't know. So, are there Bantu languages? You said, William, that Bantu languages don't actually go as far as he does with these changing classifiers. Right. They, Typically, they, they're, 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 more, they're more restricted. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. It's more like Every once in a while, you have a word that can mean two different things based on the, the the classifier. Right. It's a lot more like what we would recognize as grammatical gender in the Bantu languages. It's not perfectly like that, but it's much, much more uh-huh. like that um, with some flexibility that effectively acts sort of derivationally, which okay. is what's going on. Which which grammatical gender can do, too. 
Again, rarely. Rarely. <laughs> um, nothing really interesting about the numbers that I can see. No. I mean, this is a cute little language. It has a few fun things going on that give it naturalistic touches. That So mm-hmm. I, I think for, especially a beginning conlanger, once again, I think this is a really nice language to look at because it has a nice mix. It's not overwhelming in its complexity, but still has a natural degree of um, irregularity here and there. No, um, yeah, I, don't know. I think. It, hmm? oh, I'm sorry. I was going to say, um, in terms of the, uh, I was just looking through in the prepositions. Um, I don't know if we mentioned those earlier. But they don't. I mean, he says the list is incomplete, but um, I wasn't sure if they were. Uh, I'm trying to find them again right now, because um, the prepositions. Yeah, ah, he, they go. he lists six of them, but doesn't give really examples. Uh, the 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 the. Uh... Descriptions leave something to be desired because he just kind of associates them with case terms, but doesn't really explain how they're used. Now, there is one example of of the of the first one, Tama. It's on an example of something like the bird is in the tree or the tree's in the valley, and that Tama is on the verb as a suffix, it looks like. Um, so I don't know if that's how they're used or what. I'm trying to find that again. Um like I see, there's one for the bird flew across the room, but I don't think there's an. Across. Oh no, no, no! There are. You need to go up. There are. What are they called? Direction prefixes on the verb. Yeah, I'm trying to find that one. And example. there are, and there uh-huh. are five of them. Mm-hmm. There was one with like in the. There it is. The tree is in the valley. Um, it is actually above negation. Uh, it says the tree. The the translation is the tree is in the valley, and it says. Um, on the, in, on the line below the the native language one, it shows uh, nomitama, I suppose, is stand, third singular, present, and then inside is tama. You see it right there on the verb, it looks like. So I don't know if those prepositions are fused onto the verb or what. Oh, positional linking verbs. So I don't know if that's incorporated there or how. But it's nice to see that, you know, there's, I guess they're still working on this. I don't know when the last time it was modified was, but... Um, it was uh, just interesting. It's, um, it's an interesting language. We'll have a link to it, it this on the show notes. Like mm-hmm. William said, it's not particularly long uh, grammar, but mm-hmm. it has a lot of little interesting things going on. Mm-hmm. Um, you think we can uh, sort of move on and discuss a feedback and then wrap up the show? Or do sure. we have more to say about the Man of the No, it's cute or good. Um, okay. Well, uh, we, I haven't gotten a whole lot of substantive emails. Like I said, I, I did get some emails telling me that, hey, the podcast is broken. But, uh, <laughs> I think I fixed that already. Just like that. <laughs> um, but I wanted to, we haven't highlighted a single comment for a while, but I thought this would be a good one to actually read on the show. It was on the negation episode, episode 44. Mm. Yes, sometimes it takes that long for me to decide to put put something onto the show. Mm. Uh, from Aiden, he said, Sad that Bianca left, but wanted to note that I'm enjoying Mike's input immensely. I particularly like that while William talks about the natlangs, what the natlangs of the world tend to do, and... George clarifies for all the noobs. Mike is consistently saying, what about if you did this? 
<laughs> he's always got some totally new, bizarre, interesting way of accomplishing the task, and that helps make every episode more like the Practica, my personally favorite episodes. Oh, I'm glad that he, he uh, enjoys it, and that that's wonderful. <laughs> so... I- I just try to toss in what I'm thinking about, you know, well, what if you do this? And I suppose that's, that's good that I can add that, that, uh, thank you for that comment. That's, that's what I meant, Mike, Mm -hmm. uh, several weeks ago when I said, uh, you ask the dumb questions. (laughs) That's kind of what I meant is you, you ask something that doesn't make (laughs) sense at first, but then we can kind of suss through it and figure out, oh, that kind of is an interesting, is an interesting way of thinking about it. Mm, okay. <laughs> I'm glad I that it makes sense now. <laughs> oh. oh. Well, that's good. So, anyway, that... mm-hmm. William is being silent. Well, yeah. Silent. No. Should I sing um, or something? I mean... <laughs> no feedback on the feedback? No, it's good. No, I think no, I think Mike's might just fall into a feedback loop then. You know, we'll be feeding back on the feedback of the feedback. No, Uh no, no. No, but I think it's good that you you do tend to stop us and say, wait, wait, you know, ask a little more questions. Because sometimes um I've been inventing languages longer than either the two of you have been alive. Uh uh-huh. So I sometimes I mean I use terminology and so forth that I assume everyone knows, which is not always true. I just envisioned one of your languages turning to me and saying, Mike, back when I was your age. <laughs> <laughs> no, okay. none, of the, none of the languages I invented when I was younger have survived. Mm. Oh. <laughs> Which is That's probably just as well. Yeah. So anyway, I think we can wrap up the show and say, first of all, William, do you have any final words of wisdom? I do. I was thinking about last week with Chakwan and and I just want to say work with the limits that you impose on yourself. Now, I wasn't here last week. What, do you, what, what does that mean by that? Sometimes we start off creating a language with an idea, but the longer we go, we find ourselves once again sticking all of those things that we love, our mm-hmm. favorite features, and we, we, we lose, we sort of chicken out. Mm-hmm. And and don't commit ourselves to the things we thought we were going to do at the start. And this is especially true in historical. Mm-hmm. Once you've decided to do the historical, you have to come up with a way to cope with the fact that your conjugation system may have completely evaporated. Oh no! Just trust that and go with that. Because I mm-hmm. think in any art, if I can speak a little airy fairy now about what we do, in any art, mm-hmm. having to solve problems with limits. Is very creative. True. When you can do anything you want, that's, you know, you're just, you're taking an easy way out. Solve problems based on the the limits you put on yourself is a possibility for coming up with creative new solutions to old problems. Yes, it uh, sounds very good. Sounds kind of like a lot of, it sounds kind of, a lot of the, uh huh. A lot of the best artistic endeavors have involved somebody setting a limit on where the plot can go or what can happen. So I think that's a very good advice. It sounds what were you kind saying, of Mike. I was going to say it sounds kind of like having to beat the game by the rules rather than using god mode and cheating. Yeah. Yeah. It can create much more interesting things if you don't uh, stray from your path. I think that's much. right. I think that's right. Yeah. So that's my wisdom. Um 
So, Mike, do you have any wisdom? Uh, um, pretty much just feel free to explore things and read other things and uh, always ask yourself, what happens if I do this? And come up with totally <laughs> new, bizarre, and interesting ways of doing it. And voila, you have something new and creative and, and interesting. And if it's totally off the wall, then wonderful, you're interesting and unique and bizarre, which is not bad. Okay. And I'm going to say happy Conlang. You have been listening to Conlangery. You can find the show notes for this episode and all previous episodes at conlangery.com, including links to our featured conlang and a few resources to help you make sense of today's topic. You'll also find links to subscribe to us on iTunes or through other podcatchers, to our Twitter, Facebook, and Google Plus pages, and a whole lot more. Questions, comments, and suggestions may be sent to conlangery at gmail.com. You can also submit those translated greetings we play at the top of the show or conscripts to display in our header. Please see the contribute page for details. Thanks for listening. But I look forward to hearing it. I don't usually listen to ones I'm in because it's kind of like, you know, you. I just don't usually. Really? I always listen to the episodes when they're out. I mean, not yeah. always right away, but yeah, I, always, I listen to everything we do. <laughs> I George listen Larkin. to the episodes enough times while I'm trying to edit, edit them. them yeah. So. Yeah. I see, I see. I so, just live in fear that I have said something outrageously stupid. Hmm. <laughs> And then I want to be able to correct myself if I have. Yeah. Ah! I cannot log into conlangery.gmail.com. I don't know why. Computers are just being annoying today. I don't know what it is. I mean, is it, it's not the full moon or anything, is it? Actually, isn't the supermoon, like, Friday or something? Wasn't the supermoon just recently? The supermoon? Mm-hmm. Perigee. I don't even understand what the supermoon is. It was something about, like, the moon's orbit is elliptical around the Earth, and right. during the perigee moon, which is, um, you know, just that's the formal term, it's when the moon, it's a full moon when it's at the point when it's really close to the Earth, so the full, full moon appears to be, I think, like, 14% larger. So, okay. And okay. Um, some people say, oh, well, it causes the tides to be a little bit higher, which it does, but it's only like, a couple centimeters. A couple centimeters on the tide can actually be a big deal. Yes, mm-hmm. especially if you're in one of those sinking islands <laughs> that's yeah. being swamped by um, <laughs> rising seas. I didn't want to be walking home in the rain, which I don't mind, while mm. holding a, a, a metal stick when there was so much lightning going on. Um, what is that noise? It's just me. <laughs> okay. Sorry, I'm counting out. I have I had found coins in my car, so I was counting them out. <laughs> I don't know if that was what, what William was talking about. Oh well, this is the noise I was. This is the noise I thought you were meaning. Yes. Yeah. So that's the noise of me counting out coins. <laughs> shiggles. Yes, just for shiggles. Well, that would be sad if we discovered Audacity was recording the wrong thing for the whole session. Oh yes. Well, Ooh. it's fine. It's the backup anyway, but whenever they change the the 
Google Docs to drive. It confused me. There are two pronunciations for that. Polysemy, which I don't like. Put it mm-hmm. back, please. You deleted polysemy. <laughs> and then polysemy is another acceptable pronunciation. Uh.